So now, let's talk a little bit about acidosis and DKA. Because your patient's labs come back. And this is not a mystery diagnosis case, right? This patient probably has DKA. These are the labs. Now, we're not super happy about that bicarb. I mean, it's not negative two, but it's not good either. But let's for a minute pause and talk about what you're going to need to do to fix your patient's acidosis in DKA. Because as we said, he's having a hard time. He's up against that physiologic cliff. We want to fix this quickly. We don't want to sort of sit around and just see what happens. We want to fix the acidosis. So let's talk a minute about DKA and what we're going to need to do to do that. Diabetic ketoacidosis results from an insulin supply demand mismatch. It's just like an MI, right? MI results from an oxygen supply demand mismatch. The same idea applies to DKA, just in a slightly more complicated way. So I used to have this idea that only type 1 diabetics got DKA, and it was just a, like, you don't have any insulin thing. Turns out that's not really the case. It's a little bit more complicated than that because it's not as simple as insulin deficiency. So what does this look like? Well, turns out there are two factors. Yes, decreased insulin supply is a very important factor here, but so is increased insulin demand. And both of them together work synergistically to cause DKA. The key things with DKA, of course, hyperglycemia and ketoacidosis. So how does this work? So decreased insulin supply. This one is straightforward, right? You have decreased pancreatic insulin production, or you just have somebody who's just not taking their insulin. Maybe they can't get the prescription. They can't pay for it. They forgot. Whatever it is, you have decreased insulin supply. Your decreased insulin supply, of course, causes a drop in your circulating insulin. When you have a drop in your circulating insulin, two things happen. One, gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis, and decreased glucose uptake. All of those things together act synergistically, and you end up with profound hyperglycemia. At the same time, a profound drop in your circulating insulin does something else. It convinces your body that you're starving to death. So your body goes into this other mode of metabolism. And basically, long final common pathway that has a lot of different components, but basically what ends up happening is it upregulates the enzyme lipase, which then converts triglycerides into free fatty acids, and eventually you get ketosis and ketoacidosis. That's what happens when you get decreased insulin supply. But it only takes a tiny little bit of insulin to prevent this all from happening. And there's another factor here, which is increased insulin demand. Normally, this results from some kind of physiologic stress. It could be anything. It could be infection. We see that all the time because diabetics are prone to infection. It could be an MI. It could be a surgery. It could be trauma. Anything that puts increased physiologic stress on your diabetic patient. Because what does increased physiologic stress do? It increases the levels of your counter-regulatory hormones, the main ones being cortisol and epinephrine. And it turns out that increase in counter-regulatory hormones 
has the exact same effects as a decrease in circulating insulin. You upregulate gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis, you downregulate glucose uptake, and you upregulate lipase. So both of these two things hit the same pathways. And especially when they're acting synergistically, when you have a patient who's a diabetic who already has decreased insulin supply, then you hit them with an increased insulin demand, this is where you end up. The reason it's important to understand this is because sometimes in DKA, it's just an insulin supply issue. They're a type 1 diabetic. They lost their insulin. They forgot the syringes. The pharmacy was closed. Whatever it is, and they just have no insulin. This is much easier to treat when it's just an insulin supply issue because you just give them back some insulin and done, call it a day. Your life gets more complicated when you have ongoing increased insulin demand. Because if I have a patient who's septic and they come in and I address the insulin supply issue, I start them on an insulin drip, but they're having an ongoing physiologic stress. Because did starting them on the insulin drip fix their sepsis? Did it fix their MI? Of course it didn't. So if you have a patient that has ongoing physiologic stress, you have to remember that's going to cause ongoing increase in insulin demand. Meaning, those patients are harder to treat. They're probably going to require more insulin. They're probably going to be sicker. It's going to be more complicated to treat this. And this is why in your head... Whenever you see a diabetic patient who's in DKA, you do two things. One, determine the patient's in DKA. But two, ask yourself, why are they in DKA? And it's really easy to say it's medication noncompliance. Because it's just an easy thing for us to say because then we don't have to keep digging. You really have to dig a little bit to discover, is there something that triggered this? Is there some kind of physiologic stress that really triggered this increased insulin demand? And that is why you care about this. So back to our patient. Given all of this, other than the bicarb, which obviously we don't like, which one of these lab values are you most concerned about? Which one of these values do you see and you're like, mm, that's not so good. We're in trouble now. The potassium, right? Why? Why are we so concerned about the potassium? Well, as we just talked about, the thing that is going to fix your patient's diabetic ketoacidosis is insulin administration, right? What happens if I give insulin to somebody with a potassium of 2.9? What's going to happen to their potassium? Or to turn it around, what do we do to treat hyperkalemia? We give insulin, right? Because it forces the potassium into the cells and it tanks your serum potassium. I can't give this guy insulin right now because I'm going to take in serum potassium and he's going to code and that's just poor form. Don't do that. On top of that, not only am I giving him insulin, I'm doing all these other things that are going to decrease his serum potassium, right? I'm giving him a bunch of IV fluids. That's going to drop his serum potassium. I'm also, hopefully, gradually improving his acidosis. What's another way we treat hyperkalemia? We give bicarb. Why? It does the same thing. It shifts the potassium into the cells. So if giving bicarb, if making somebody more alkalotic shifts potassium into cells, the reverse is also true. 
Now, in this case, I'm doing three things. I'm giving the patient fluids. I'm diluting the serum potassium. I am also correcting his acidosis. So he's going to get more alkalotic, which is going to shift even more potassium into cells. And then on top of it, I give him insulin. I'm going to tank his potassium. Now, this is a problem because we just said that our patient's up against a physiologic cliff. He has reached the limit of his ability to compensate for his acute metabolic acidosis. What this number tells me is that there's nothing I can do about it right now. I am very, very concerned about this patient now because that number, that potassium, means I can't fix it. And so now I'm saying, okay, we're in trouble because it's a lot of work to breathe your CO2 down to 10. The diaphragm's a muscle. He's running a marathon with his diaphragm. It's a lot of work. He could tire out. You should be very, very concerned about this patient. And you need to go nuts with the potassium here. Start repleting his potassium. So here's the thing. This is not the moment to write for like 30 milliequivalents IV. Not the moment. Firstly, repleting at IV takes for freaking ever, right? You can give 10 an hour through the IV. How much care are we going to need to give this guy? Well, a lot, right? So 10 milliequivalents should raise his K by about 0.1. But keep in mind, as I'm doing this, I'm giving him fluids, and hopefully his acidosis is getting better, which is going to drop the K even as I'm giving him K. So I usually do the following. I usually give as much PO as I can. The minute these patients come into the ER, I'm loading them up with Zofran because I know I'm going to have to start giving them potassium. What's the fastest way to give them potassium? It's PO. It's fast. A note about that. In most hospitals, when you order PO potassium, it's the cater, it's the long-acting, the sort of delayed-release potassium. That's not really what we want right now. I mean, you can do that, that's fine, but a faster way to do it is to give the liquid. It's not delicious. Apologize to the patient, but that's the fastest way to do it. So I'll give like a bunch of Zofran, then maybe 60 milliequivalents PO, because I find if you give more than that, patients like to throw up, which is not helping. And then I'll start another 60 IV. When you write these orders, you cannot type them into the computer and walk away. You have to go talk to the nurse. Because the nurse is going to see that, oh, you're giving 120 milliequivalents of potassium and be like, that can't be right. That's probably an error. you got to go talk to the nurse and explain it to them. When you're talking to the nurse, you also need to make sure this patient has enough IVs. Because you're going to need a bunch of them, right? We're going to be giving IV fluids. We're going to be replacing the potassium. We're going to then, hopefully soon, be giving an insulin drip. And then, what if he has sepsis and needs antibiotics? This guy needs a lot of access. I will not infrequently, if it's a really sick DKA patient, put in a central line. I can give potassium faster that way, and I have all the access I need. Because what you don't want to have happen as you're treating this patient is having to stop the insulin drip and pause it because you can't give potassium at the same time and you have to pause the insulin drip because you're dropping your potassium. That's what you don't want to do, especially in a patient who's this sick, who's up against a physiologic cliff. Last thing, replete your mag. If the K is this low, your mag may also be low. And you're not going to be able to fix that potassium until you fix the magnesium. So don't forget about that. Check your mag. Even do it empirically. We gotta fix that K because that's the rate limiting step to addressing this patient's acidosis. And we're on a time clock here. This patient cannot breathe his CO2 down to 10 forever.